I'd like to invite you to turn to page 955 in your Sanctuary Bible. Our reading this morning is a little longer than what we have in the bullets, and it's all of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Just a few words of introduction about this passage. The first half of chapter 1 of Matthew is a genealogy. One of those dry, dusty parts of the Bible that we try to skip over sometimes. But today we're going to hear it in all of its hard-to-pronounce-edness. We'll give it a shot. The trick is to act confident when you do it, and then everybody's like, oh, that's how it's pronounced. So that's, that's my strategy, at least. Genealogies were really important at the time of Jesus. They were kind of like your resume. They were your credentials, which is odd for us as Americans because we like to be evaluated on our own accomplishments and not on the accomplishments of our family. This is a very individualistic culture that we live in. But back then, if you were going to write a biography of somebody famous, you would start with their genealogy. The Roman emperors, their genealogy started with the gods, and they descended on down. And that was how much honor you had was how much honor your family had, how many illustrious and famous and successful and heroic people were in your family tree. So this biography of Jesus that we call the Gospel of Matthew starts out like other biographies of that time, with the genealogy of Jesus. However, this one's a little different. And I'm going to ask you to look for some names in this list that I read that are a little bit surprising. So with that introduction, here's our reading from Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the mother of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. 
Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I lived in Israel for six years on a sabbatical, and uh, I stayed at a Catholic conference center, sort of a retreat center for Catholic priests, but they allowed me in. It was really nice. And um, there was a place where this idea of your family being your reputation really came through to me. The man, the priest who was running the whole center, realized that they needed a new person in the office, somebody to answer the phones and type up a few things. And so he, he asked his day-to-day operations manager, who happened to be a Palestinian Christian, somebody who was born in that area and, and lived, lived there and was steeped in the culture of the Middle East, and, and the, the director of the center was an American, a, a Westerner. So he said to his second-in-command, Get some resumes of people who can fill this slot. And so they sent out the word to people what they were looking for. They need to know Microsoft Word and Excel, and you have to answer the phone and just do some general things around the office. So six resumes come back, and they look at them together. And the Westerner looks through the stack of resumes and says, this one looks good. She has better qualifications than all the rest. She can do more things. She's been to secretarial school. But his second-in-command, who was from that area, took that one and set it aside and went through and pulled another one out that didn't have nearly the same qualifications. And he said, we should hire this girl because she comes from a good family. That's how things were done over there. Your family is your resume. It's your reputation. It doesn't matter what your qualifications are. If you come from a good family, the doors open up for you. Well, that's what's going on here with Jesus. This is his genealogy, his family tree. This is his resume. These are his credentials. But as I was reading, I wonder if any of us noticed some unusual names in this list. A few problems. Yes, Ona. Tamar. Rahab. That's very interesting, I know. Some people didn't get names. Yeah, Bathsheba. 
Who else? This is good. I did ask. Ahaz. Yep. Ruth. Yep. She was, she was a Gentile. Yeah. The, Jeconiah. This list is not a good list. When you're doing a genealogy like this, especially in a culture where people marry their cousins a lot, there was a way to make this list and leave a lot of these people out. Just genetically, you could have done it. You could have just put every best person from every generation forward and still come up with some sort of ancestry of Jesus that would look good on paper. Matthew chose not to do that. He chose to put some really messy people in the list. The person I think that is actually the worst person on this list is Jacob. He was terrible. He was a liar and a cheat and a whiner, which I can't stand. No, I'm kidding. And he was a scoundrel and a manipulator. He had all sorts of problems. His brother got so mad at him, he wanted to kill him. Jacob was a mess. Abraham was a mess. David, talk about a complex person. On one side, a man after God's own heart, obedient to God, he made some beautiful poetry. But the shadow side, oh. He has an adulterous affair with a married woman, and when he can't cover up what he's done, he arranges for her husband to be murdered. Whoa. What a messy person. And he doesn't even know he's done anything wrong until the prophet of God comes and confronts him with a parable about it. It's classic drama in the scriptures. There's messes along here. Rahab was a prostitute, right? We have some kind of problems with this genealogy. And somebody who was handed Matthew's gospel hot off the presses back then, and they said, oh good, a new biography. I can't wait to plow into this one. Oh, it starts the way all the biographies do with the genealogy. And they start reading and they get a few lines in and they say, oh, I'm not sure this is somebody I'm really going to admire after reading this list. I don't think anyone that descends from this family could get a job as a secretary in my town. This is a mess. So what's David up to? Jesus is born into a messy family, a other side of the tracks kind of family. This is God's family. It's what it looks like. That's the first half of this passage, but, and that's sort of the grand sweep of history, but now the passage wants us to telescope in to the immediate family of Jesus, and it takes a sort of a microscope, telescope, right down into the town of Nazareth. Here are Mary and Joseph. They're in this little town. If there's one thing about a town like this, one word that would describe it completely is nosy. It's a nosy, nosy town. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Most of the people in the town are related to each other in one way or another. Krista and I and George went driving through this town one day in a rented car in Israel. We drove, it's, it's on very steep hillsides, we drove all the way down to the bottom of this hill, despite all the signs that probably told me not to in some language that I didn't understand, and we ended up in a cul-de-sac of a very narrow street, and we had to back the car up a thousand feet. There was no way to turn it around. It was really nerve-wracking. Um, and Nazareth is a Christian village, so I, I think we were, in, we were safe. But the houses are stacked, one on top of the other, looking down the hill. And so the people have a very easy time looking down the hill 
and seeing exactly what their neighbors are doing at all times. It's a nosy town. Now, in a nosy town like that, we find out that Mary and Joseph get engaged. And that would have lit up the wires pretty quickly. How happy we are for that young couple. That looks pretty good. So they enter into a betrothal or a marriage contract. They're not married yet in that culture. They're pledged to get married to each other. An initial contract has been drawn up between their two families. It's going to be consummated about a year from then when they can save up enough money for a feast and kind of figure out who gets what. And at that time, the groom would then take his new bride to, their families, to his family's house. And in that year, hopefully, they've been building a new room for the couple to live in so that they have a little bit of privacy in that new home. In between the betrothal and the wedding, we find that Mary has conceived a child and buried deep within her is the Son of God, put there by the Holy Spirit. Now, in a nosy town, this is a really big problem. How do I tell people about this? She tells one person, but not somebody from her town. She tells her cousin Elizabeth. She travels miles to tell somebody else. But in her own hometown, there's no record of her telling anybody. Word always gets out, though. As a young woman, Mary would have participated in a monthly ritual purification. It was under the law. And you can bet that the very first time she missed that one, people started saying, where's Mary? She should be here by now. We haven't seen her the last few days. Uh Uh-oh, this can only mean one thing. Could it be Joseph? We haven't seen them together much. Maybe somebody else? Mary's not telling us. And in no time, maybe even minutes, or at a minimum, hours, the word spread all throughout the town. The tongues start wagging. The idle talk goes into high gear. Now what was hard, I think... For Joseph in this was that he was probably the last person to hear about it. But he did hear about it. And so we read in our scriptures that Joseph finds out. um, And in verse 19, it says this, Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, Joseph had a, really had a choice at this moment. In a society where honor is super important to you and shame is really going to destroy you, he had the option, and because he knew the child wasn't his, he had the option at that point, it was almost like the nuclear option, he had the option to renounce Mary as loudly and vociferously as he could and to, and to pour all the shame of this awkward situation and make it land squarely on her. Saying, I'm the wronged one. I'm going to back out of this marriage contract. She's an adulteress. I have have nothing to do with this. That was the choice he faced right in that moment. And that was the way to maximize his own honor in that situation and incur the least amount of shame on himself. Something a little challenging here is that he decided that he was going to divorce her But the text also says that he was a righteous man. And perhaps to us that doesn't sound like the righteous way out for Joseph. But here's what he he does. 
he decides instead of going that full way of renouncing her, that he would do it quietly, that he would back out of that marriage contract as quietly and softly as he could. Now, the result of that was that some of the shame of that situation was always going to be carried around by Joseph himself. It was going to stick with him. People would even say to him, if the child wasn't yours, Joseph, why didn't you just go full bore? Now there's always a question about you. What, what aren't you telling us? And for the rest of his life, it was going to damage him. To me, that's a very interesting and provocative definition of the word righteous. A righteous man allows some undeserved shame to rest on himself so that he can protect somebody else. If Mary had been publicly renounced, she might have been let go by her family, and she'd have to make ends meet on her own. We should have no illusions about how horrifying that would have been for her back then. The only other alternative would be that she would be taken in front of the city and stoned to death as an adulteress. But by Joseph backing out quietly and keeping some of the shame of the situation on himself, it would have allowed Mary's family to keep her in the family and to help her raise the child. Or it would have allowed whoever the father was to come and marry Mary and start a family with her. That's how Joseph was thinking. So Joseph was a righteous man in the truest sense. He took a risk for somebody else. Now I know Jesus was the Son of God and he had his own moral compass, but can you imagine how good it was for Jesus to grow up in a household with a father figure like that who had practiced sacrificial love in the most intimate relationship he'd ever been in. God bless Joseph. God bless him for that. Well, we find out that uh, all of this was really not so necessary anyways because an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and clears up the matter for him, takes some of the awkwardness away from it. Joseph, the child isn't yours. We know that. You know that. I know that. The American people know that. Uh, but it's also not the child of another man in this village. Your honor has not been sullied by this. It is the child of God. It is the Spirit's work. And big things are planned for this child, and you need to be part of it. And Joseph agrees. Now, here's a great question for all of us. Why did God wait until after Joseph decided to divorce Mary to clear up all this with the dream from an angel? Wouldn't it have been a little simpler and less messy if God had told Joseph even before he found out about Mary? Guess what? This is happening to your fiancé. Don't be worried about it. Don't, you know. Well, for one, it gave Joseph an opportunity to discover how righteous he was, which was great. But for another thing, it's, it's that God doesn't really mind messy situations. He doesn't mind those awkward situations. All he cares about is redeeming people out of them. It doesn't bother God that this was a messy, a messy thing for Joseph and for Mary. So the angel comes to Joseph, 
And in the dream, tells Joseph what to name his son, or Mary's son, actually. His stepson, really. And uh, Joseph, if you had any ideas about what you were going to name the child, forget it, because we have uh, other names for the son. And the first one was Jesus, which is the, the name we know the Christ by, Jesus, which is a form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which is actually pronounced Yehoshua, which means Yahweh, or the Lord, is salvation. But he's given another name, too, and maybe this was the middle name on the birth certificate that we never see anywhere, right? The one he just puts as an E, as an initial. The other name was Emmanuel, which means God is with us, or God with us. I like how these two names really neatly sum up who Jesus is. The Lord will save, and God is with us. Jesus and Emmanuel. Because this is how God saves us, is by being with us. God enters into all sorts of messy family trees, like he does with Jesus. He comes into a troubled world. He's born into a village that looks kind of like uh, the other side of the tracks. Jesus couldn't get a secretarial job anywhere based on his family tree. But yet, he is God born into this world and he is with us. And so that's how it works. One name sort of contributes to the other. God saves us by being with us in the birth of Jesus and in his life and in his ministry and on in the death of and on the cross and his resurrection. Pardon me. That's the thing about God. He doesn't mind entering into messy situations. He doesn't mind using messy people like David and Jacob. He named his people after Jacob. He changed Jacob's name to Israel and he named his people that. God doesn't mind working through prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and broken people, people from rotten, messed up families. He does it with Jesus. He does it with us. I want to tell you a little bit about my family. Um, in my extended family, there are a lot of things that probably would look a little bit messy. There is mental illness in my extended family. There has been suicide in my extended family. There has been divorce not just in my extended family, but in my own life. My father did some genealogy before he died, and we think that some of our ancestors possibly went afoul of the legal authorities from time to time. Some of them spent some time in prison, it seems. I might not get a job as a secretary anywhere. If I was living back then, they would look at Hans Eric and say, nothing good will come from this. Now, as Americans, we like to think that it's our own merits that get us through. We're not going to be connected to our family and the reputation of our family. Anybody can succeed, and we're judged on our own accomplishments. Here's something that's really hard for Americans to get, and it's this. God 
actually does evaluate you on the basis of your family. I'm going to say that again. God evaluates you on the basis of your messed up family tree. We can read about this in Romans chapter 5. Because in your family tree, if you go back far enough, are two people and a garden and a tree and a really bad choice. And that really bad choice brought death and sin and destruction into the world, and it has marked us from that point on. It is something that you cannot pull out of your being by yourself. It is in you. It is in your DNA. It is sin. And when we're honest with ourselves and we see that the fruit of that fruit is always planting new seeds in the world wherever it can. It's always spreading destruction and misery and hopelessness and death wherever it goes. It's powerful. It messes up families. It creates divorce and suicide and problems with the law. It does all sorts of things. That seed is powerful. It's been growing ever since. But what we find here in Matthew 1 is that for many generations, God's people had been carrying another small seed. Generation to generation. Even though sometimes they were faithless, God was faithful. Even sometimes they were righteous, but they were unrighteous at other times. They were still able to carry this seed until it finally took root in a tiny town. It took root inside a woman and it sprung forth and grew. And that new tree that grows out is so beautiful and great that the birds of the air will come and make their nest in it. It's like a vine and a branches that spread out and connect all of us to each other. It grows its own fruit and the seeds sprout from it, and the Holy Spirit blows those seeds all over this world looking for a place in the soil where it can find a place to grow. That secret seed inside of us that's longing to get out. That seed was Emmanuel, God with us. And unless that seed went and did the thing that only humans can do, unless it fell to the ground and died, it would have remained just a seed. But it became human and it died and it was buried in the ground and it rose again and sprouted forth in life. Our family tree has some people that said no to God. Made a huge mistake, but it also has some people. Our spiritual family tree who said yes to God at a very critical moment. A righteous man named Joseph, a righteous woman named Mary, agreed to be part of God's plan to bring this seed into the world. So what can we say? What can we say about this? God trusts broken people like you and me who come from broken families. He trusts us to carry this seed of Emmanuel, 
into the world and to plant it anywhere it will grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of your righteous servant, Joseph, and of Mary. We pray that you work through us in our brokenness to redeem our world for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.